me to Daniel chapter 8. Making progress through this great book. Um, It's been several weeks, that's why I sent out an outline so you could see where we've been and where we're going. Um, it's, it's a little bit behind me here. Um, right, we, we're just coming out of this section that is designed to, to show God's rule among the nations. And now we're coming into a section, part two, uh, where it's going to be a lots of weird, strange images to us, but it's messages to God's people to, to train us to persevere uh, through the things that we, we wouldn't plan for and don't want to go through. <laughs> but he tells us this is what's coming. And so hold on. Right? So the, this last half of Daniel really is about perseverance. It's about trusting that, that God is in control. And so those are the, the two lessons that we've been learning over and over again in, in Daniel. One, despite present appearances, God is in absolute control of every moment. Uh, just as God planted Daniel on purpose in Babylon, he's planted us here at this moment in time on purpose. And part of his plan and purpose for your life and my life and Daniel's life is to work and pray for the peace of our neighbors, uh, whether they believe like us or not. We, we talked about Jeremiah 29 uh, a lot, 29.7, of, of pray for the shalom, the well-being, the welfare of the city where I have placed you. Um, and for Daniel, that city where he is placed, those are the people that did extreme violence to his loved ones, to God's people. So it's, it's an amazing statement to say, you're sent to be a peacemaker among your, God's enemies whom he loves <laughs> and has called you to serve. And so you're going to need those two, two ideas in your head as we read Daniel 8, that God is in control and that uh, we have work to do as God's servants. So... Let's read this, and then we'll, we'll see what God has to teach us today. It's Daniel chapter 8. This is God's word. It says, In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the citadel, which is in the province of Elam, so he's, he went from like modern-day Iraq to, he got beamed over to Ir, the, the Iran border. That's, that's what it's talking about here. And he says, I saw in the vision that I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high. But one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west to cross the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. 
Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. Some of the hosts and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. It became great, even as great as the prince of the hosts. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, and it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the one who spoke, For how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offering, the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and host to be trampled underfoot? And he said to me, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Ulai, and it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up. He said, Behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia. And the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles, shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. He shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind he shall become great. Without warning he shall destroy many. And he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And he shall be broken, but by no human hand. The vision of the evenings and the mornings has been told is true. But seal up the vision, for it refers to many days from now. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business. But I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. And this is God's word. It is true and trustworthy. It's spoken to us today in love. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we say like Daniel this morning, um, blessed be the name of the living God to whom belongs wisdom. Uh, you're the God who changes times and seasons, who removes kings and sets up kings. You give wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. 
And we confess today that we know our life and our times are in your sovereign, loving hands. So as we look at chapter 8 today, Lord, send your spirit so that we might grow in wisdom and understanding to be like Jesus. Um, Help us trust your plan for our lives, even though we may not understand it, so that we might be faithful to you, to your mission, to the world, uh, for the good of our neighbor, um, that the world might know Jesus, the one whom you sent, and know you, our Heavenly Father. So we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, that was a wild ride. How many of you got done reading this chapter and said, oh good, I finally understand what God is up to. (laughs) I can sleep in peace. Oh, it's amazing how many times it says, make Daniel understand, make Daniel understand, and when it's all done, Daniel's bedridden, disturbed, and says, I didn't understand. And so you're in good company. But he was able to get up, even after seeing these terrifying visions, he's able to get up and go back to work. Back to the work of serving, praying, working for the king of Babylon. And so I want to dig into this with you and, and ask, okay, yeah, what did Daniel see? And then that really big question that we all have is, how is that helpful to us today as Christians, as followers of Jesus? The gospel is in here. And I want to show you, but it's going to take some work because we're in apocalyptic literature. And so that's my first point today is why so apocalyptic, right? I mean, as I've, we're Western. We love our facts. We love our logic. We just, it'd be so much easier if God would just say, okay, here's what's going to happen. Here's this guy, Alexander the Great. He's going to be the king of Greece. He's going to conquer the world. He's going to die. You know, and he's just lay it all out in a history book. Instead, we've got rams, we've got goats, we've got horns, we've got animals fighting. And you're wondering, why can't God just communicate more simply? All right, we're gonna, this is going to come up at the end of chapter 9. Chapters 10 through 12 in Daniel are all apocalyptic literature uh, visions. And I know this is, not, this is a challenge to teach. Because even when you're armed with the rules of grammar interpretation can be difficult. Right? I mean, some of you maybe have been in churches who've gone through this with a newspaper right next to these texts, trying to figure out what is God up to right now. I mean, Christian history is littered with people making prophecies and predictions, swearing that God told them, and finding out the next morning that they're wrong. So I don't want to be that guy. I mean, there's, since 1994, someone has figured out, <laughs> right, there's been over 200 claims knowing when Jesus is going to come back since World War II. All wrong. That was before Y2K. That was before the Mayans told us the world was going to end. That was before Obama became president, and then Trump, and now Biden. That's just not how to read apocalyptic literature. And so I want to start this chapter just warning you. Um, We don't hold on to these chapters as some kind of like Sudoku puzzle to read alongside your newspaper. Well, we don't have those anymore. Alongside the websites (laughs) to know exactly when Jesus is to return. This is here to give us a perspective on history. How to live by faith while we wait. And so if you use Daniel, all right, 
as an example, these, these chapters in, in Daniel are showing God's people the mountains of what's to come in the distance. And if you've ever been to the Adirondacks, all right, you stand up on Sleeping Beauty, you can see a whole bunch of mountains in the background. But you can't really tell how close they are. You can't tell how close they are to each other. You don't really have that kind of perspective. And that's where we're at. We're standing from afar from some things that are going to come from Daniel's perspective. And Daniel, he already knows the Messiah is coming. And then here are some events while he waits. And so God is teaching him how to wait by faith. And it's the same for us as Christians, right? We know Jesus has come. We know Jesus will come again. And we know in the meantime, there's a whole bunch of trouble and ugly stuff and tribulation in between, and we're called to wait by faith and to persevere. Right? And we're already at a better perspective than Daniel had. We have clear vision. We've arrived at the Jesus mountain, <laughs> and now we're waiting for him to return. Right? We know that all human history is waiting for Jesus to come back, to wipe away the tears of his saints, uh, to judge the wicked. We know that wickedness has an expiration date. Um, we know that death will be destroyed forever. We know that death, its sting has been taken away by Jesus' resurrection. Uh, we know that the new heavens and new earth is coming when we're going to feast and celebrate this work that God does for us. But between the promise and the fulfillment, we wait. We persevere. And that's what apocalyptic literature is for, is to help you look to the throne of God and say, God is in control, even though it seems like chaos and selfishness reigns. There is a plan. Right? This is, this is designed to get God's sovereign control into your visual memory. Right? Which is great, because not all of us are good at tests and remembering facts. This is, this is memory. This is visual. You get a goat, you get a ram, you get animals colliding, and you get to see that God's in control. And so, let's, let's jump into this. We're gonna, one of the ways I think it's going to be easy to, easier to just know where we're going, we're going to look at the three main characters. Because we get the characters and we get the interpretation. Right? So we're going to look at the ram first. We'll look at the goat and we'll look at this little horn, and then at the end we'll say, okay, what does it all mean when we don't understand what God is up to? All right, so look at the ram. First thing that happens, Daniel's beamed up, right? He's taken from Babylon to Susa. It's like going from modern-day Iraq to Iran. He's on a canal. And so, right, this is all a vision, a dream. But he sees this ram doing whatever at once. It's becoming great. He's got two different horns that are growing at different rates. And in verse 15, when we get the interpretation, Daniel is told that all these things are for the time of the end. To which we go, okay, the end of what? And I think the best understanding you're going to get of that is not the end of the world. Uh, that those are some later visions. It seems to be that Daniel's being shown what happens when the exile in Babylon comes to an end, right? When our suffering ends, God, what are you going to do next? Right? It's still some days in the future, but I think that makes the best sense of the context that, that this is what Daniel's being shown what is going to happen at the end of Babylon when Babylon disappears, 
Well, after Babylon comes this ram. And the ram, according to the interpretation, are these two kings, the kings of Media and Persia. And so if you've been following, I know it's been a while, but if you're following the, the story, which isn't told chronologically, when Daniel in chapter 5 was summoned to Belshazzar's feast, uh, he had already had this vision we just read. So he already knew that Babylon's days were numbered, that her cruelty and evil will be overcome, done with. The handwriting was on the wall. What's interesting is Daniel, armed with that knowledge, is, is much more confident. He's very blunt <laughs> with Belshazzar. He says, you know, you knew about God who holds your breath and your life in his hands, and you chose to ignore him. You didn't humble your heart. Your kingdom's coming to an end. It's a, da- it's a dangerous thing to say to a king. Right? And so if you piece all that together, here's one way to apply this, this the story of the ram. Right? One, it's showing you that God's sovereign over history. This is told before the events happened. Right? After Babylon came the Medes and the Persians. Right? So God is at work even through people who do whatever they want. God is still at work even through people's selfishness. And for us as Christians, well, what's the effect? Right? Knowing that evil will fade away to nothing. And, and Daniel showed us in chapter 5, it gives us confidence. A confidence to stand strong to hold up our head even in the midst of the chaos because we're not we may be battered we may be bruised we may be disoriented we may be appalled but we're still held in our father's hands that's why john piper wrote really well this is god's providence his control over good and evil it's designed to put steel in the spine of human courage (laughs) or to put ballast in the battered boat of human faith we're in a season where we don't, I've heard lots of us say this, I know I've said it, I wish these things had never happened in my lifetime. I do not want to go through this. I wish it would end. I wish it would speed up. Uh, and, you know, Tolkien said it right, who went through World War I and sent his son off to World War II through Gandalf. Yeah, everybody feels that way. But what's up to us is decide what to do with the time we've been given. And what we, with the time we've been given, we're called to trust, to live by faith, to persevere, to trust that even through these political kingdoms that do whatever they want, God's purposes are still being worked out. And that's what history shows. Right? The ram's going to come. Daniel was shown. The ram came. The Medes and Persians took over just as Daniel was shown. And so I would apply that to say, lift up your head. God is still at work for your good, even if we don't understand it. Right? And that's, that's the secret. That's the secret of apocalyptic literature. It just blasts your, your imagination, your biblical imagination, with different pictures to show you God is still in control over the chaos. Apocalyptic literature shows us a God who's orchestrating history for his purposes, working an end to what seems like an unending evil. So, do you tell yourself that story? (laughs) 
Have you told yourself that story lately? Right? And when you read this, the imagery just flashes and then it's gone, right? And I think that, that, that experience helps you see history from God's perspective. Just as quick as the ram appears and it feels undefeatable, it's gone because along comes a goat with even greater speed and greater power. Fades away. Right? In the moment, tribulation feels like forever. It feels heavy. And apocalyptic literature is showing us, you may say how long, we're commanded and shown to cry out, how long will this thing last? But it shows us it won't last forever. So maybe there's wisdom there for you these days. Regardless of who is in charge on earth of these earthly powers, they won't last forever. That wisdom helps us process the goat, right? That we have more details about the goat. The goat comes and butts the ramp, well, doesn't just butt him out, he tramples him to death. It's brutal. This goat becomes even greater, but at the height of his strength, the horn is broken. All right, and in the accompanying interpretation, we're shown that the goat is this king of Greece, and then there's four kings that come after. And it's astounding. You think about this. Right? Centuries before, the Greece rose up as a world power and then conquered the known world from Greece to Western India. This is showing you a picture that the king of Greece is going to become a powerful kingdom. Terrifying. Massive speed. All right, I mean, Daniel wasn't given a history book in advance, but he was given a, uh, an impression of what to expect. And we know now from history that that goat, that first king of Greece, was Alexander the Great. Right? And that's exactly what happened. Right? He rose up and in 12 years conquered the known world at that time from, from Greece to Western India with astonishing speed and, and terrifying <laughs> cruelty, war after war. Right? When he came to Persia to, to batter the ram in his wrath, we're told that Alexander the Great took 20,000 soldiers up against Persia's 100,000, and on the first day of battle, the Greeks only lost 100 men. The Persians lost 20,000. Know, like I said, within 12 years, this empire arose with great speed, which helps make sense of some of the, the imagery here in our, our text. You can see why Daniel would be sick. I mean, he's being shown on a an appalling amount of violence. And then we know the goat, Alexander the Great, right? It says the horn is broken when he's strong. What happens to Alexander the Great? Right, I'm, I'm fortunate to remember your middle school history class, but right, at 33, he died suddenly of an illness. The horn was broken while he was still strong. He still had grand plans to keep going. Gone. And so then... After the goat, these four leaders take over the Greek Empire as time passes, and along comes this little horn who turns his attention towards this glorious land, which is another way to talk about Israel. And we get the most detail about this little horn. Right? So 
It seems odd that the little horn would get more ink than this massive empire and this great king like Alexander the Great. But I find this incredibly comforting, even in the midst of the brutality. Right? You know, the world is at war <laughs> in these visions. And all of a sudden, the attention of the vision zeroes in on God's people. Right? The living God, his eyes, his heart, his attention is on the whole world, but specifically on the people of Israel, his covenant people. Right? God's eyes and care and providential protection are on his people when they're in tribulation and trouble. It's the story of the Bible from beginning to end. You see that perspective in, from Jesus in Matthew 25 when he talks about the last judgment and, and Jesus says, at the last day I'm going to separate the sheep from the goats based on how you treated the poor, the hungry, the naked. And this is how Jesus identifies with those people. He says, as you did to the least of these, my brothers, you also did it to me. Which is why Jesus is saying, I'm so identified with the church, that how you treat my followers, it's how you treat me. My heart is with them, with you, the church. You take that perspective, it's just as true in the Old Testament, why God, why this vision would be focused on Israel, because Israel is part of God's plan to right all wrongs in the world. They are the means by which God will bring blessing to the nations. They are his loved ones. And so this tiny horn does great and awful things to Israel, to the Jews. Um, he rises up against the Prince of Princes. It's another way of saying it's like he went, war to, went to battle with God himself. He treats worship of the living God and God's people like a cockroach. Something to be stepped on. I mean, you listen to these descriptions in verse 24 and 25. He's destructive. He, he brings violence in general, but it's specifically against the saints, God's loved ones. Verse 25, he thinks he's great. Right? He's walking around telling himself, I'm awesome, better than all these people everywhere else. He doesn't care about the truth. Right? He promotes deception. What matters most to him, I mean, this is textbook narcissism. It's all about me. Right. And then in verse 25, he will come to an end by God's divine hand. Right. History helps us again see this more clearly than Daniel. Uh, the name of this king, this little horn, was a second century Seleucid ruler named Antiochus IV Epiphanes. Uh, you can read about some of this in the book of 1 Maccabees. His reputation, right? He's known as Antiochus the Mad. I don't know if you ever remember watching uh, the movie The Gladiator and how disturbing the, the, the brother, um, Commodus, <laughs> right? And it was, he, was just, he was just a disturbing dude. Same idea. Whenever you have a ruler who's nuts, right, they give him nicknames. But he was known as Antiochus the Mad because of his cruelty, and he thought a lot of himself, right? Only somebody who thinks a lot of themselves would give themselves the name Antiochus the Illustrious God. I feel good. Uh, it says he's a bold-faced king, meaning 
He's stubborn. He doesn't change his mind. He was firmly opposed to the worship of the living God. He wanted to make them culturally Greek. And so in 167 BC, he demanded that all the sacrifices to God in the temple just stop. And he went even further, he would sacrifice pigs on the altar as part of turning the temple into a place of worship for another god, Zeus. Uh, he's, he would fit right in in the Game of Thrones. It says he understands riddles. I mean, some translations says he's the master of intrigue. Right? He knows how to play the political game and scheme. He wasn't even in line to be king. He jumped ahead of his nephew through violence. All right, he goes to war against God. He rises up against the prince of, pri prince of princes. He causes fearful discussion, uh, destruction. He tramples God's sanctuary. And just, just to give you a glimpse of how brutal this guy is, when it says, without warning, he destroys many. Here's what happened. Right? So he, he replaces the Jewish high priest with his own guy. And then he turns from Israel and says, I'm going to conquer Egypt. Right? He's never satisfied. And here's what one historian says about Antiochus. When he invaded Egypt, there was a rumor among the Jews that he died in battle. And, of course, everybody's thrilled because, you know, the crazy violent guy is gone. So they start to reinstate the high priest. And in the midst of this celebration, all of a sudden, Antiochus the Mad returns. And then he accuses people of rebellion. He savagely attacks Jerusalem. He executes tens of thousands of its inhabitants up to 40,000 in three days while others were taken captive. And then he, again, he sacrificed a pig on, on the altar, changed the high priest, stole things from the temple. A year later, it was even worse. He had a full-blown set up the temple to be a place for Zeus. He was offering human sacrifices. Without warning, he, set, he massacred the Jews on a Sabbath. 20,000 in one day. Not somebody you want to live under. You can see why Daniel's sick. Without warning, he shall destroy many. The temple trampled on for 2,300 evenings and mornings. Hence Daniel, appalled. I did not understand it. God, what are you up to? So let's apply this. When we don't understand God's plans, right, we don't want to leave Daniel on his sickbed. He doesn't stay there. What helps him rise up and get back to work? Well, here's the first thing he saw, and here's why I believe he's appalled. It's not just the violence. I think there's more to it. I mean, Daniel lived in violent times. He worked for a guy that if you displeased the king, he fed you to lions. He saw more ugly things than we probably care to think about. And what Daniel saw in this apocalyptic vision is just the sheer ugliness of sin. Right? Pastor Jim's preaching in Romans chapter 1. And those are all those propositions and those facts. There's no unrighteous, no not one. There's something wrong with every human heart. In apocalyptic visions, it shows you. And you can feel it. You know, 
the heart that feels superior to others, the heart that rises in conflict against God, the heart that doesn't care about worship. I want to worship God how I want to worship. And what this little horn is described as doing, is participating in, is called willful rebellion. It's it's transgression. That's verse 12. It's an act of transgression to destroy the worship of the living God. And this is the humbling part, so just buckle up. That word transgression is not just to use to describe that evil guy over there who who is evil, right? His crimes are awful. But it's described that word transgression in Pesha is used to describe human evil all the way through the Old Testament. That's, that's just a basic word for sin. It describes our choice to choose our way over God's way, our willful desire to worship the creation rather than the creator. Uh, and then all the ugliness that flows from that decision. That's transgression. I want to do what I want. Right? God sets up rules. Don't take the cookie from the cookie jar. Transgression is, well, I want a cookie, so I'm going to take the cookie. Because I want it. Because I think I know better than God. So one commentator says what Daniel saw in the ram, the goat, and this last horn was this twisted and distorted, out-of-shape heart that causes and inflicts on others great pain and suffering and damage. And it's, it's a negative apocalypse. It's showing you what sin is like. Right? And that's exactly what happens, right? When, when I'm grumpy, when, when I'm transgressing God's law, it's because in my heart I've rised, my heart has risen and I feel superior to everyone else. And I'm going to do what I want. And of course, the, the result, if you've ever been in any kind of conflict, it looks an awful lot like animals trampling each other. See, Daniel... And this is why he's so appalled. He's showing a world under the reign of transgression, of sin. A world where humans demand to be served rather than in love, choosing to serve. So remember, apocalypse is a revealing, it's an unveiling, it's showing you reality. And in these figures, the ram, the goat, the horn, we're seeing the real nature of sin unveiled, standing unrepentant, trying to be independent of God. See why Daniel was appalled? I think he got a glimpse of himself as well as part of being just horrified by all the violence he saw. I think one of the clues you get, what what immediately follows chapter 8? Confession. When Daniel owns up to his own stuff and confesses his sin and the sin of his people. So just let that sink in for a moment. Right? You see transgression from all these pagans, these, these, these brutal kings and kingdoms. And then here's Daniel saying, I too need mercy. <laughs> I'm on the same scale of rebellion as the little horn. I'm a sinner. And there's that famous uh, letter in, in the London Times that was you know, this sent out, what, 
What is wrong with the world? Write in and tell us what's wrong with the world. And G.K. Chesterton famously wrote in, and he just had two words. Yeah. Dear sir, it's me. Because I've, my transgression has caused harm. What do you do with that? Well, one, be comforted. God does not leave transgression in charge. I mean, if you can read through this chapter and you can see all the subtle ways God is at work in the background, right? All of a sudden, the ram that seems undefeatable, he's gone. The goat, right? When he's at his most strong, Alexander the Great falls sick. Uh, Antiochus the Mad, when he seems like he can't be beaten by no human hand, he falls sick and dies. And we're told from history it was with great psychological anguish. It's almost like the, he got his just desserts based on the anguish he caused to others. Right. This, this is what you need to see. When you don't understand the transgression of others, uh, your own transgression, you need hope to get out of bed in the morning. You need to see that God is at work and that the evil and darkness and sin and suffering, they're just a small and passing thing in perspective to God's kingdom coming. God is still at work. Despite what it looks like, God is sovereign over the chaos. Even Antiochus will fade away. <laughs> and that's what happened. It's one more view, right? You need to see the depths of our sin. You need to see that God is at work moving and working to, to bring evil to an end. And how does God deal with transgression? Right? I mean, for Daniel, he knew, right, he, he had this vision of the Son of Man that somebody's going to come and conquer the beasts. We have, we have clearer vision, don't we? Because right? where else do you see a transgression that rises up and tramples God's sanctuary and treats God's temple, God's dwelling place, like it's a cockroach to be stomped out? Jesus on the cross. Jesus, who he said, talking about his body in the Gospel of John, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rise it up, raise it up. Right. Why? To deal with our transgressions. And that's what Isaiah 53 tells us, and he uses that same word, pesha, transgression, that describes Antiochus, that describes my heart, saying that our rebellion needs healed and forgiven. It tells us he was... What? Pierced for our transgressions. Crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, upon Jesus. By his wounds we are healed. Daniel sees transgression as an appalled and made sick in that exact same phrase you find in Isaiah 53 to describe what Jesus went through in verse 11 when it says it was the will of the Lord to crush Jesus, he has put him to grief, which is the same way to say it made him sick. Because the sinless one, the perfect one, the beloved son of God is bearing and taking away the transgressions of the guilty. Of course there's hope, because out of the anguish of his soul he will see and be satisfied and make many accounted righteous. You will be accepted as if you had never done anything wrong through faith in this suffering servant, Jesus. 
all because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. He identified with us. And now he makes intercession. He prays for transgressors like you and me. See, chapter 8 is here to help us see the ugliness of what sin is and what would happen if it was left unchecked. But it also helps us better understand the cross, does it not? What it took for God to love us while we were at our most ugly. He loved us so much he let his son be trampled by human rebellion. And he was sovereign over that moment. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Able to use transgression to forgive, to work for good, to forgive, to restore, to reconcile all things to Christ himself. I mean, our natural response is, I don't want to have anything to do with anyone who's evil. Cancel it. Jesus moves towards transgressors to forgive them. And so he's moving towards you. The question is, will you receive his gift by faith? as you see him taking the judgment we deserved. What do you do with that news? Well, in the words of Jack Miller, cheer up, you're worse than your thought. <laughs> but God, the, the depths of God's love is off the charts. So we, we praise, we, we, we are saved in order to give praise to God for his glorious grace. As Paul writes in Ephesians, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. And when you recognize that your transgression is forgiven, and that you are loved in the midst of tribulation and trouble, well, you'll rise up like Daniel and get to work of being his witnesses to be about God's business. Right? We go about... You're going to go off to this week to, where, to your place of employment to, to hang out with the people God has placed you with. And we're called to make Christ known, his sovereignty known, to love sinners to repentance the way we have been loved. To choose to be wounded rather than to wound is one of my favorite prayers. Um, to bear patiently with the failings of others. To extend the same kindness, mercy, and compassion that God in Christ has given us. You become an ambassador of peace, a peacemaker, and a world that seems like it's ruled by transgression, but when you're controlled by the love of God in Christ, you become his ambassador. So, my friends, when you don't understand God's plan, where do you look? <laughs> Even the message of Daniel chapter 8, it didn't seem like it at first, is telling you, look ahead Daniel 8 is telling you to look ahead to the cross of Christ and to the empty tomb to see the anguish of our Savior, to see that there is a plan and that these things, too, will come to an end. And that will put steel in the spine of your courage. And hopefully, God willing, through the work of his Spirit, put ballast in the battered boat of your faith. Look at how God uses the evil of the cross to restore sinners like us. And then go tell someone else. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for not leaving us, leaving history to be a mystery. That you are at work and you've shown your servants of old and they wrote it down so that we can see what it takes to persevere and to trust. And We confess we don't understand what you're up to. And so I pray that as we see Jesus this morning, 
we would leave here rejoicing at the grace you have given, uh, armed with good news that we would be uh, your spirit-filled, joyful witnesses uh, to our neighbors, and that your kingdom would come here on earth, even as we wait for the day when you wipe away all the tears that we no longer want to cry. So may your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven, because as we've seen this morning, you are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.